Good evening, everyone. Grace and peace. It is good to see you all this evening. Welcome to our Bible study tonight. Uh, we are looking forward to what God has in store for us as we... Steve back. Yay. Yay. Yeah. Well, I sure appreciate all y'all's uh, words of uh, condolences and prayer and support uh, for sure. Uh, you know, the grief kind of comes and goes in waves, right? And that'll probably be that away for a little while, but it's good to be here amongst people that uh, I know love me and Elena and the family. So, Pastor Kurt, thanks for carrying the load while I was away. I appreciate it very, very much. Well, we're going to return um, for one more uh, evening to Capernaum, um, as Pastor Kurt uh, had you there last week. And uh, one of the things that if you've been following closely that you'll realize about Capernaum is that it is a town that had great faith and then lost it. And um, there's these... Like, like kind of with my grief, right? There's these ebbs and flows uh, in our life to our faith. And I think it's important to note when those ebbs and flows tend to come after us so that we can try, by the grace of God, to not give in to those doubts and to those fears. And so we're going to see some of that tonight uh, as we uh, head into Mark chapter 5. Yes. Tonight. And I thought... In that vein, a good place for us to start tonight will be Psalm 27. So if you want to bow your heads, um, I will pray this psalm over you. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advanced against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling, and he will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me, at his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. 
And everyone said, Amen. Amen indeed. Big question tonight. What happens when we die? We go to heaven. It's simple. You just go to God and you can go to heaven. So the surface, it's simple. But what happens when you die? Who do you see? Have do you see other people? Do you do you wait for a while before you go to heaven? Do you go straight to heaven? What is heaven like in relation to New Jerusalem that we've talked a lot about? Um, do we live in a city? Do we have bodies? <clears throat> There's a a lot to ask about that. And I'm a firm believer it's better to study those things before you're in a place of grief. doesn't mean you can't when you're grieving, but it's just much harder. The Bible, as powerful as it is, does not give us as much of an answer, or I should say does not give us the answer in a way that we want it. I would like just like a whole book of day one in heaven looks like this, and you go through heaven orientation, and then the hostess comes and takes you to right um, to get to know everybody in heaven. Um, what, what 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 is it like? And as much as we kind of wonder about it, I mean, we know we we know the basics, and all that we discussed tonight. I don't want to dissuade you from what we know to be the truth. When you die, you're going to open your eyes, you're going to see Jesus, and it's going to be good. But this idea that we know is true, has developed over thousands of years. It wasn't given to Adam and Eve on the first day. There's thousands of years of development. And Jesus, when he gets here, hits the gas pedal. We're going to talk a lot about uh, the Jews say, nobody has come back. Nobody's died and come back. Well, I think Jesus is the one exception, right? Because he did die and come back. So Jesus had particular knowledge. So today, as much as we can, we want you to experience a day with Jesus. Now, we all have sort of preconceived notions. But remember, uh, Jesus is is a brilliant rabbi. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. In a sense, he's always teaching. He's always presenting. But many of the things that he tries to teach the disciples, and I think you'll see tonight us, it's not just easy. It doesn't just roll off. Tonight, he's very much going to deal with the issue of death, what happens after we die. But it's not in a way, any way, that the disciples would expect. So in order to sort of ground us where we're tonight, like Steve said, we're still in the fishy town, fish town of Capernaum. We're on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is in friendly territory. He is in the town of Capernaum, about a thousand people. He has been preaching regularly in the synagogue. So on Saturday, they have him as the sort of resident rabbi, and they're loving, loving it. They're figuring out he is more than just any regular rabbi. He's a rabbi with authority, Shimcha. He's also a miracle worker, which they don't normally associate with rabbis. So this is something special. And they're just just about there, starting to figure out the prophecies he's talking about, the things that he's doing, they're not just random acts. These are the fulfillment of prophecies, and he very well could be the Messiah, but he's not really matching all the things they thought the Messiah would be. So it's an exciting time. It, it's 
I'm going to argue it's some of the best time that Jesus has in ministry, um, just the, being well respected, accepted, and listened to. But as Steve warned us, it's not going to last. So in order to ground the debate, we need to think about what the people he was speaking to believed about death. So if I took your family tonight and we lined them all up, and I'm talking your good family and then the crazies that you don't talk about. I got a lot of those in my family. But how would they answer the question, what happens when you die? Same as you? Mm, Not my family. It'd get a little dicey, a little weird pretty quick. And amongst the Jews in Jesus' day, there were a lot of competing views. Don't have time to go through them all tonight, so we're going to narrow them down into three huge camps. And these are the views that Jesus, in a sense, will be challenged with. These are what faithful, and not all Jews are faithful, but faithful Jews are believing or not believing, as is the case. So we're aided greatly here by the historian Josephus, Uh, Flavius Josephus, he is a Jewish general during the revolt, lived a little after Jesus, and he changes sides. Uh, He was born Matthias Natyahu and changes his name to Flavius Josephus. So he works for the Romans. But he tried to explain the Jewish world to the Romans. So he gives us a lot of good information. So he gives us this breakdown of what the Jews believe about death. First group, I think, is the Sadducees. They've got that slide. So he actually quoting Josephus, um, as for the persistence of the soul after death, penalties in the underworld and reward, they will have none of it. This is a group primarily priestly uh, sellouts, I would say. These are Jews working for the Romans. But they're trying to maintain a little bit of their their own identity, their, their tend to be the priestly class, the tribe of Levi. They only, they're fundamentalists. They only believe in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. So if it's not in the Torah, they do not believe it, period. So is heaven in the first five books of the Bible? It's not, not at all. As shocking as that sounds to us, God didn't talk to Adam and Eve about it. He didn't talk to Moses about it. When they came to the promised land, they really were coming to a land. They weren't thinking that there was a promised place they would go. The Jews early in their history stand out from all their neighbors because they really don't have an elaborate sense of the afterlife. The Egyptians? Oh, yeah. They got afterlife of afterlives. They're obsessed with it. But the Jews, not so much. And maybe there's a reaction, you know, being in Egypt and getting sick of it. We don't know that. But so the Sadducees, and Jesus will run into them a lot. They're the ones that ask the questions about, well, if there's a heaven, then who are you married to in heaven? If you've been married several times, all these nasty questions. They don't believe in angels. They're just the bare bones. We don't believe it. All you have is this life, and that's it. Uh, so popular, fun group, really good at funerals. So the second group, a little more familiar with, uh, the Pharisees. And they have an interesting view. After death, the soul passes into a resurrected body, but wicked souls suffer eternal punishment. Now, it's important that we get the distinction here. 
The Pharisees are probably, well, I can't say this, the, the most popular brand of Judaism that Jesus will know. There's not any Sadducees in Galilee where he grows up. There's a lot of Pharisees. And in a sense, Jesus is raised in an area where he's kind of a branch of them, as strange as that sounds. But of all forms of Judaism, his particular type is most close to the Pharisees. They believe, the Pharisees, based on the prophets, that when the Messiah comes, this will be, we talked about last week, the Besorah. This will be the good news. This will be the gospel. And it will be a time in which the world is consolidated. It comes to an end. The Jews will be brought home. The Gentiles that want to will join them. And the dead will be resurrected. So if you ask a Pharisee, what happens when I die? They would say it's much like with Ezekiel the valley of the dry bones that when Messiah comes God will speak again and the bodies will come back and people will be born again in resurrected bodies is that what we believe yeah it's it's going to get interesting all right so there's a third group uh so go to the next slide i think or No? Okay. The third group are called the Essenes. And we're not 100% sure how big a group this is. This is Josephus' words. But John the Baptist shows a great number of signs of being in these Essenes. The Essenes were a form of Judaism that looked at the state of their people and said, this is a disaster. They looked at the Roman occupation. They looked at the corruption in Jerusalem. They looked at just the general moral decline of their people. And so they said, we're leaving. We're going to go back out to the desert where we came from as a people. We're going to go back and wander in a sense for 40 years. We're going to start over. We're going to go live in the desert and try to come back and be the chosen people again. I mean, it's so bad, we need a reset. And they have a view that the soul is eternal and that your body is just a temporary house for it. Eventually, your body will decay and your soul will be free. The soul will return to God. And in some fashion, and again, this is, this is a big group, they debate uh, what the soul does with God. They're not sure. It just goes back to God. Now, this view they have is very, very close to what Greeks believe. That when I die, a Greek or Roman generally will burn the body. Romans especially, sometimes Greeks. Uh, a lot of times Greeks just throw them in the cave too. But whatever happens, the body decays. The soul leaves and it returns to God or God's. So you've got three branches. There's a soul that's eternal. It goes to paradise or heaven. There's resurrection at the end of time for people. And there's nothing. So which, just on the surface, category would Jesus fall into? Yeah. (laughs) So to answer this question, we're going to follow Jesus for a day. Now be warned, Jesus doesn't have a regular day. He, uh, he's a busy boy. So we'll, we'll jump into it in Matthew uh, chapter 6. 
One of the things I want y'all to notice as we're going through oh, this five. is Do what? I lied to him five. Oh yeah, five. Yeah. Um, I was thinking six a while ago, so I'll, you could blame it on me. <laughs> so uh, anyway, one thing I want you to notice is that I think we we oftentimes understand Jesus's miracles as a as just an expression of God's power, uh, pushing back the evil, making people whole, uh, right, is an expression of what he wants to do for everyone. Uh, but I want you to notice how, you know, we've talked about this in on Sundays, how the way rabbis taught was by primarily doing what? Asking questions. And then taking those questions and blending them with parables and then taking those two things and then taking the uh, the uh, Talmuds or Talmudim uh, disciples to special locations, Caesarea Philippi, to make a point. So all those things are, are um, means by which rabbis teach. They don't just give you the answer. you got to work for it, right? And so I want you to notice how Jesus combines the working of miracles and the asking of questions in this uh, day in life, as Pastor Curtis is saying here. It's yeah. pretty powerful. Yeah. I, I literally don't think you could spend an hour with Jesus and not have your world rocked. I mean, he's just that that powerful. But let's, let's prove it. Let's just say it. So chapter 5, I lied. Chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus went back across the other side of the lake, and this is the Sea of Galilee, Kinneret, a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. So as I said, these are the good times. Capernaum is glad to see their adopted son. He may be from Nazareth, but they love him. A leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, so this is a Greek rendering of Yair, which is a good Hebrew name, he came and fell down before him. So synagogues, remember, are simply gathering places of this particular branch of Judaism that seeks to study scripture and pass it on to the next generation. Every Saturday, uh, the, the day of rest, men would gather in the local synagogue and they would be taught, sort of like we're doing tonight, the scriptures. The original Hebrew, they're not speaking Hebrew anymore. They speak Aramaic. Uh, they're, they're trying to understand the place and the culture and how it applies. Jesus has been speaking there regularly. Synagogues don't have like pastors or priests or anything like that. They do have teachers, rabbis. Um, usually there will be a junior rabbi that's teaching the kids. And then they'll have traveling rabbis, or, or sometimes maybe rabbis that just stay in that town. It depends. Uh, but the president here of the synagogue is the person entrusted with taking care of the facility. He's the one that guards the Torah. He's the one that makes sure you know everything is in order. It's a very, very prestigious position. Uh, We've, we've looked at these little towns. They don't have much, right? They're, they're pretty meager affairs. But what are their synagogues like? They're beautiful. They're investing everything they have. And because these are fish boom towns, they have more than they did in Nazareth. Um, I didn't bring the picture, but uh, if you can remember, the synagogue in Capernaum is stunning. It's gorgeous. It's 
I mean, archaeology is not definitive from what we have, but it's probably the most beautiful synagogue in all the North Shore of the Jewish synagogues. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Magdala have nothing like it. It's gorgeous. So this president of the synagogue, probably like the mayor in town, I mean, someone really important, what does he come and do before Jesus? Yeah, he bows down. Is it easy to get Jews to bow down? It's not. It's like a Texan. Um, we don't just bow down to anybody. Uh, they were slaves. Um, they're being forced to be slaves now. So this act is incredible. Huge crowd there, the whole town. The mayor, in a, in a sense, is humbling himself. And he's coming to Jesus. He falls down before him, pleading with him to heal his little daughter. She's about to die. He said in, a, said in desperation, please come and place your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. So heartfelt plea, beg uh, from a father to Jesus. Like I said, they know he's something more. He's not just a rabbi. He perhaps can save this little girl. Verse 24, Jesus went with him, and the crowd thronged behind. So Jesus has agreed to help. The whole town, in a sense, is going, ah, we're going to watch the spectacle. And there was a woman in the crowd who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors through the years and had spent everything she had to pay for them, and she'd gotten no better. In fact, she was worse. She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowds and touched the fringe of his robe. So let's think about this for a minute. Uh, she, well, not to, just a minute, right? <laughs> Bless her heart. I mean, she is she is bleeding um, f- through her monthly flow um, for 12 years. It won't stop. Uh, Jewish uh, law says that she is unclean. And she should be segregated until she can be clean. And where where is she? Um, she's in the crowd. Now, has anybody ever been in a crowd outside the United States? We Americans have, I think, an appropriate amount of appreciation for personal space. And maybe even more Texans, because it's wide out here, right? Don't, don't, don't get all, but you get to the Middle East, uh, other places, and uh, they're touching me here. Uh, touch, touch me. Um, so the crowd is there. She's in the middle of them. What is she doing? She's breaking the law. She's breaking the law. She's not going to be popular. Now, the Jews in Galilee are not, I think, as stringent as the ones in Jerusalem by the temple, but this still matters to them. This is still God's law. They're trying their best to understand it and apply it. And so when a woman is unclean like this, she really doesn't need to be in the middle of a crowd touching people. And just imagine... Through no fault of her own, I mean, she's bled for 12 years. This is this is horrendous. She's lost her family. She's lost any friends. She's lost, I mean, this would have been seen as a sign of severe divine displeasure. She is ostracized. And she comes up with the bright idea to do what? 
the holiest man in town, the man that we think can perform a miracle. And what are you going to do if you touch him, lady? You can make him ritually impure. I don't think they would have killed her, but finding this out, and especially a father who's desperate to save his daughter, and she is only thinking about herself. Could she block what the Messiah was going to do? I mean, you you had to guard rabbis, you had to guard priests so they wouldn't become defiled. Um, this is not just a silly law that's old-fashioned. This is they, something they lived, they believed. So here, here she is. We did a sermon series, I hope to do it again, on what Jesus looked like. And this is one of the main passages here that helps us understand kind of the role he was uh, carrying on in society. Uh, Jewish men of his day generally wore a wool or, depending on economic status, linen uh, robe from neck to heel. And that was sort of their their daily garment. Uh, they would have underwear beneath that. But Jewish men, particularly uh, rabbis, uh, people of the rabbinic side always wore prayer shawls. So this is, uh, I didn't bring one tonight, but you've seen them, right? These are the shawls that go over their shoulders. Uh, They have blue and white stripes. They have tassels at the bottom. Every time a Jewish man prays, every time he reads Torah, he goes in the synagogue, he lifts it up and puts it over his head. Uh, Jews today still mimic this a little bit with the the yarmulkes that they wear. They cover their head. But in Jesus' day, they're using the prayer shawls to do this. You get this prayer shawl when you become a man, when you get your bar mitzvah. You're a son of the law. In a real sense, this is your spirituality. This is the focus of who you are. Uh, when Jesus says uh, he goes to his closet to pray, that's what they call this. When you pull the shawl up over your head, it makes a little block and you, you focus on God. This is the single most important article of clothing a Jewish man will have. When he gets married, you take the prayer shawl and you raise it on four posts and he marries his daughter or he marries his bride underneath that. So very important. The tzitzit, that's what they call them, the little tassels, are said to hold any righteousness that you have gathered in life. So if you perform a commandment, a mitzvah, that goes to the tzitzit, um, the little tassels. Um, so very important. And what does she go for? The prayer shawl. Not only does she go for the prayer shawl, she goes for the tassels. So again, what does that say about her? She's desperate. But can you see maybe a little bit hopeful? I mean, she has something. She's tried everything. Uh, She's tried all the doctors, right? Spent all of her money, done everything, and no hope. So maybe this rabbi who is something more, this rabbi who actually is the son of God, is the Christ, is the the real son of God, she doesn't quite know, but but she's going to risk it all. And being there in that crowd, doing what she's doing, she is risking it. Pastor Kurt, I wonder how well she knew Malachi. Yeah. 
Malachi chapter 4, you know, it's the last, the way our Bible is arranged is the last chapter in the Old Testament. It wasn't arranged that way for the Jewish people, but nevertheless, listen to this in and, and, uh, chapter 4, verse 2. But you who revere my name, the son of righteousness, what did Pastor Kurt say about the, the, the tzitzit? That's where all the righteousness was built up. But... Uh, But for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Yep. And that is what she is channeling when she is reaching out for this uh, talit. And, And she says it in verse 22. She thought to herself, if I can just touch Translation is clothing, but I, I think she means the, the talit, the, the prayer shawl. I will be healed. Immediately, the bleeding stopped. Twelve years. Twelve years. And finally, something has worked. And she could feel that she had been healed. All right. This is a great story, right? Welcome to reality. Jesus realized at once the healing power had gone from him. What? What? Um, So he turned around into the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? Jesus, why does everything have to be a question? That's right. So we have to stop here for a minute. Mark is telling us this story. He's probably got it from Peter. He's trying to understand it. So Jesus senses, in a sense, some of his righteousness has been taken out of his clothes by contact. He must be packed in, right? I mean, this is what I mean. Uh, American personal space is not being maintained here. This is not COVID six feet away. Nobody's wearing a mask. We're all together. We're breathing each other's air. Here it is. Who touched me? Now, does Jesus not know who touched him? This is what Pastor Steve was trying to tell us. A day with Jesus is not exactly sometimes what we expect it is. I think there is a lesson here that he intends his disciples, the crowd, uh, Jairus, Yerus, to understand. Um, This woman, a little sneaky, a whole lot desperate, but hopeful, has just tried to touch his righteousness in a humble way as much as she can in a non-disruptive way. I mean, she's literally trying to get a crumb, I think, of, of Jesus. Just just a little bit of your righteousness. And he wants people uh, t- to notice it. Um, the loaded word is, who touched me? What did an uh, unclean woman touching a man, especially not her husband, automatically convey? Uncleanliness. It's not sinful. I mean, there's a difference between being unclean and sinful, but it would make him ceremonially impure. Uh, It would drive away the righteousness. Now, a woman with this condition, horrible. A woman that's not Jesus' mother or his wife never should touch him. And so it's a little bit of a, hey, uh, disciples, 
Part of your job is to be bodyguards, to be uh, protectors of your rabbi. You you do everything with him. You cook his meals. You you, you sleep in the same place as everything. I mean, you, you are with him 24-7 because his words are so important they cannot be lost. So Jesus is sort of saying, hey, hey guys, did you, did you notice? I just got felt up here. Um, no, we didn't really say that. But um, you, you guys got to be on the ball here. Um, Y'all do give Kurt a lot of grace, right? <laughs> <laughs> There's stories I could tell you about tzitzis and unmarried women grabbing other men's um, tassels. Anyways. That, anyway. <laughs> so it's, um, it's not far from what I'm saying, all right? Um, his disciples said to him, all this crowd is pressing around you. How can you ask? Who touched me? But he kept looking around to see who had done it. And this is interesting to me. 33. Then the frightened woman. Why was she frightened? She'd just been healed after 12 years. Why is she frightened? Yeah. I'm probably going to get beat. Um, if not by the disciples, by the crowd. And here I have offended this great rabbi. Um, it's, it, it could go bad. And this is where... I think it's so powerful to know the traditions, to know kind of what we expect from Jesus, and then to realize the power when he deviates from that, because there, there's so much to that. And here, he, uh, he deviates. Um, then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, just like the president of the synagogue had done. Uh, she throws herself at his feet, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, shalom, you have been healed. Wow. Um, he calls her daughter. This is going to become really important in just a minute. Um, Mark tells us that Jesus is speaking in Aramaic. He'll actually quote the Aramaic in just a minute. Um, Talitha. So he'll use this word twice, so they're making a connection for us. But it's a, it's a term of endearment, obviously. Uh, he's showing affection uh, towards her. He said, daughter, the righteousness from my prayer robe has healed you. Right? What did he say? Your faith. That crazy little spark of hope that you had that led you into this crowd that if they had figured out what you were doing would have probably given you a good thumping. Uh, you had enough chutzpah, as they say, to try to reach up and grab the rabbi's titsy. Um, um, it's, it's a lot. Now, how am I supposed to teach you cultural things when you giggle? <laughs> I'm just teasing. <laughs> so as much as we might want to turn this into magic, he has healing powers. Uh, why don't you tell him, Steve, what we were talking about earlier, the cloths with uh, Peter. Oh, yeah, just, just a couple of things. You know, this, this uh, what happens here, it, um, it has a history after this. Um, you know, Peter 
uh, is, Peter and Paul both are invited to uh, to touch garments, and that that garments those garments are then uh, that conveys a healing. Uh, to the people who wore them, uh, that kind of thing. There's precedence of that in other parts of the scripture. The big thing here that I think is really, really crucial to note is that for Jews of that part of the world in that day, uncleanliness is what moved. See what I mean? That the uncleanliness uh, of the woman, if she touched somebody else, would move to that person. Now see how the kingdom of God is vastly different? And that is what Jesus is trying to teach here, is in the kingdom of God. No, it is the healing that moves, not the uncleanliness. Come on. And just note, uh, when we find ourselves in, in places where, oh, I need to get out of here because I don't know if I'm safe I don't know if this is good for me or good for others. No, wait a second. Remember, you've already died. You've died. And your life is now hidden with Christ and God. Colossians chapter 3. There's a 4. <laughs> Y'all got to forgive me. My mind is out of it these days. Is it 3 or 4, Daniel? Chapter 3. Thank you. Yeah, 3. And so... so Jesus, this little pocket of heaven, heaven, talking about that tonight, is in her midst. And the uncleanliness from her does not penetrate heaven. Heaven penetrates her. Right? And this, she literally was dead. You know, there's one thing about being dead. And like, you're, you're dead, dead. But she was dead. All practically speaking, she was dead. She was she was isolated from her family, from any participation in the community. She is dead, and then all of a sudden, through her faith, and notice what the faith does. Faith causes causes her to move. Biblical faith is never just a static thing. It always causes you to move, and she moves, and heaven invades her. It's beautiful. That this is what, I mean, an afternoon with Jesus is not what you think it is. I'm sure the disciples went back and thought, what just happened? And we haven't got to the crazy part yet. I mean, this is the warm-up. But to sit down and say, why did Jesus ask us that question? Why did he want us to pay attention to that woman? Why did he say what he said to her? Um, what what was the source of her healing? Everybody gets really excited that these miracles happen, but Jesus continually will try to focus on the, sort of the mechanics that it took this little spark of her faith to light the fire. Now she didn't do the heavy lifting for sure. God's power did. Jesus's righteousness did. But it still took that spark of her reaching out. So Jesus definitely wants to draw attention to it for the whole crowd, for everybody. But where were we going before we had this little interlude? Oh my gosh, a little girl is dying. Now this is how I know Jesus really is in ministry. Because you'll be doing with one thing, and then the other phone rings, and you're like, oh, my God, okay. So this is real ministry. Verse 35. While they were still speaking to her, messengers arrived from Jairus' home with a message. Your daughter is dead. There's no use in troubling What did they call him? Yeah, the the rabbi now. But Jesus ignored the comment 
and said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just trust me. Underline it. Underline it. Underline Jesus' words there. Mine says, don't be afraid, just believe. And just note, as we continue on through this, the, the connection and disconnect between fear and belief, fear and faith. And what is he asking from this president of the synagogue? And the same thing that the woman just exhibited. The belief, faith, pistios. Is that right? Pistos. 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 It's it's the same thing. You're on a fire today. Good job. (laughs) This Greek thing, I'm not sure it's going to take off. um, (laughs) Then Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anyone go with him except for Peter and James and John. So again, Jesus has method for his madness. We've had this public little spectacle, and I'm glad everybody in Capernaum is excited, but this is, this is a personal thing. Um, I'm going to bring my core disciples, and it really grates at us, but Jesus does have sort of his larger 12, and then he's got his core. So again, remember, he's investing his message, his basora, in people who have to carry it. And so he does have sort of his varsity team, and then he's got junior varsity. So he's taking the varsity guys. I want you to witness what's going to happen. Um, this is in all four of the Gospels. So really important story. They don't always agree on the detail, but here he certainly brings the, the disciples and the parents. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw the commotion and the weeping and the wailing. Jewish burial customs are pretty simple, relatively. Um, when a person dies, you bury them as quick as you can. Um, the Talmud would actually say, uh, do not let the sun set on a deceased person. So if they die, you try to bury them that day. One of the things wealthier families would do is hire professional mourners. Uh, so this sounds very Egyptian. Egyptians do the same thing. These are people who would come and professionally cry at your funeral. They would tear their hair, put dust in their hair, and Wee! You've ever heard Middle Eastern women wail? That's what they do. Have you known people in your life that could, should get that job? You know, they just cry like a, yeah, like they're dying. So you should tell them about this verse when uh, you meet them. So Jesus is like, uh, you people should go away. Uh, we, we, we don't need the professional mourners. Don't call the funeral home yet, okay? We're, we're not there. He went inside and spoke to the people. Why all this weeping and commotion, he asked. The child isn't dead. She is only asleep. What did he just say? I think this is what the disciples, they hear it, the three, and so they go home and they write this down and they're trying to understand. Okay, she's not really dead? Is is she just taking a long nap? Is she in a coma? Is this just some kind of medical thing they didn't understand? What, what is Jesus saying? Is it a medical pronouncement or is this some sort of spiritual thing? That death is not the end. This is a temporary condition like sleep and she's going to pass into something more. I mean, do you see where a day with Jesus is not the simplest thing in the world? What? So first question, is she dead? People think she's dead. 
the mourners are there. Usually don't call the funeral home if grandma's still kicking. Um, the, the messengers came um, and said, she's dead. I mean, people figure out if you're dead. Um, Jesus is being rabbinic, like Steve reminded me today. It, it's confusing. Uh, the crowd laughed at him, but he told them to go outside. Then he took the girl's father and mother and the three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said to her, and grab your pen. I want you to write this. Um, translations say, get up, little girl. But I think this is some of the most beautiful aspects of all of the New Testament. Somewhere down in your footnotes, it'll say, this is transliterated Aramaic. So it's not written in Greek. They switch to Aramaic. So they're actually remembering the literal words that Jesus said. It's Talitha Komi. Talitha, little little girl, um, get up. Um, it's the same that when he said daughter to uh, the bleeding woman. So they're definitely trying to connect these things to us. But in a perfect world, I don't know why Christians didn't pick up this language. We should have. Why we went to Latin, the language of the Romans, I don't think is a good, good thing. If we could keep this word, Talitha Kumi, it's not magic. He's not shouting. He's not shaking his hands. He just lifts this girl's hand. And he says, sweetheart, get up. <clears throat> Man, that tells you a lot about your rabbi, a lot about Jesus. He's big in a crowd. He's always teaching, but how gentle he is. Now, is the girl dead? Are Jewish people supposed to touch dead things? No. If it's your family, you can and you have to. But again, you're richly unclean. So remember what Pastor Steve said. Heaven is bigger than the uncleanliness. Usually when an unclean woman touches you, she passes her impurity on to you. Usually when you touch dead things, that impurity passes to you. But Jesus, for the second time, has just reversed that course. That's right. I think she really was dead. And that this is the miracle where he's bringing her back to life. His whole notion of sleep, again, was a very rabbinic way of saying this is a temporary state when you don't realize what's, what's going on. I will show you a greater truth. Now, the big hard question. Remember, we started with three views of the afterlife, Sadducees, Pharisees, and Essenes. We can throw this, the Sadducees out. They don't believe any of this. The Pharisees say, at the end, there will be a resurrection of the body, and the body will come back to life. The uh, Essenes say, no, it's more like the Greeks. There's an eternal soul. The soul will leave, and it will go to paradise. What has Jesus just taught through a miracle is the afterlife. It's the resurrection of the body. Well, thank you for that punctuation mark, God. Um, (laughs) I want Jesus to challenge us a little bit here. 
when Christians run around and talk about heaven, do we generally talk about the resurrection of the body? Or do we talk about a soul going to paradise? How Greek are we? And how Jesus are we? See what I mean? An afternoon with Jesus isn't just, woohoo! He told me everything I already knew. Um, he'll go on in, in this vein. And the little girl, who was 12, 12 years old, so we have this number connection. The woman had bled for how long? And so this little girl is 12. So in a sense, this is how they show highlighter marks or exclamation marks by collecting us with, with numbers. Little girl was totally short immediately stood up and walked around. Her parents were absolutely overwhelmed. Um, let me stop there. Jesus says, don't say anything yet. We'll talk about that. But the most important thing, he tells them, give her something to eat. Why does he do that? No, she's alive. She's not a ghost. Jesus will do the same thing when he comes back. He eats fish and bread and does all this stuff. Touch me. Feel it in my wound. I'm, I'm here. I'm physically resurrected. So what happens when we die? We're eating, baby. We're eating. Woohoo! <laughs> now, to be fair, Jesus and the rest of the New Testament in many ways are going to bring these two views that we have an eternal soul and we are resurrected bodies closer and closer together. There, there is sort of an overlap. Uh, eventually they will explain that our souls leave our bodies. Uh, if we are judged righteous, we're placed in a resurrected body and we go with God. If we're not, then we're sent to Gehenna, hell, um, the, the place where the dump is. But the thing that Christians, we, we gloss over this. This is the basora. This is the gospel. Jesus is saying the kingdom, the end of the world, the culmination of all things, the day the resurrection happens is happening now. If you remember Revelation, we went through this. It sort of blows our mind. The day you die is the end of time. Or if you live to the end of time, it will be the same. So a person who is living in the time of Jesus sees the same thing as the last man on earth. It's the day of resurrection. So there... I don't get into all this. Well, but, well I think yeah. a, way to, a way to think about it, uh, the, Jew, the uh, Jew, Jewish people in Jesus' day, they talked, they talked about the present evil age and the age to come. Now, in this story, which one are we in? That's a better way, yep. Both. What story are we in right now? Both, right? The future age, the age to come, has broken into our present, right? And we are living in that now. Will it come to a full and complete fruition? Yes. When the... The, uh, Egypt, the evil age completely passes away, right? And so it's both. So the comparisons between the bleeding woman and the president of the synagogue, I think, is Jesus' huge lesson. Both of them had just enough faith to approach Jesus, humble themselves, 
maybe not always necessary, but very, very helpful. And Jesus was able to overcome for them amazing things. The woman was socially, you know, for all practical purposes, dead. And I think this little girl was dead. As big and frightening and horrible as death is, this Jairus, the president of the synagogue, was shown by Jesus, God, I have power to overcome that. If you'll just have that little bit of faith to come to me and ask, turn to me. He's not going to do it, uh, you know, wave my magic hands and you all don't need to do anything. He'll get mad at Capernaum because they don't want to do anything. They just want him to do for them. But Jesus is trying to teach all involved, including his disciples, look what happened. This man loved his daughter so much that he went through some humiliation himself to approach me. And I healed her, the likes of which Israel has not seen since the time of Elisha. This is a full-bore resurrection. Would have driven the Sadducees insane. It's not possible. Well, it just happened. Um, the, the disciples get to, to see that. The family certainly gets to experience. I think huge lesson for us. Whatever it is that scares you, it overwhelms you. Whatever shames you, whatever you think, there's no hope. Even up to the point of death. Our teacher, Jesus, is saying, just... Just come. Talk to me. Approach me. I can solve this. You and I do anything. But it's not going to be me by myself. Yeah. Yeah. So I want you to ponder something. I think this story, uh, these stories of these healings uh, can create a little bit of a, uh, uh, some, uh, some issues. When we feel like we have faith, and that which we ask for doesn't happen. Right? It creates a problem. So I want you to notice, um, and Pastor Kurt's already done a good job of noticing the comparisons, but I want to give you just three, just some words, just to consider. As, as Jesus invites kind of the, the big crowd, and that would be kind of include us, I think, whatever he says, uh, don't be afraid, just believe. What, what does that really mean to say, in light of what we're facing, whatever it is, just believe? That sounds a little trite, doesn't it? Well, just always remember that uh, faith is always more than just mental assent. Biblical faith always includes action. Jarius and this woman, they acted. They moved. So that's the first step of faith. Notice what Jarius and the woman both did. They were able uh, to allow their desperation to move them to act. That's a hard thing for Midlanders. Uh, Midlanders like to put on this this uh, appearance and this air that I'm fine, just fine, right? To be authentic. So faith calls us to be authentically real with where we are and what the situation is around us. There you go. Second, that they both did hard things, right? Kurt's already mentioned that. Faith is not the easy path. Faith is the hard path. 
because it involves doing the hard work, taking risk, risk, and being in a place that could get you in an uncomfortable spot. Both of these uh, did that. And this is the challenge for us because the outcomes of both of these stories are good. Right? The woman is healed. The daughter lives. But what happens when we practice our faith and the outcome is not? Well, brothers and sisters, there's plenty of biblical stories where uh, the biblical characters did not get what they wanted. Peter died hanging upside down on a cross. Paul had his head cut off, right? And so it's this third step that makes all the difference. And it's the step of surrendering the outcomes. Because if we truly believe, right, the big five, y'all know this, don't you? The big five, that if God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, and faithful. That no matter the outcome, God's got your back. And these, this is the place that these miracles and these questions, and they all coalesce together to teach the disciples and to teach us. So many levels we could go on this. Did Jesus heal every dead person in town? No. He'll he'll raise one other. Um, but does Jesus raise everybody from the dead? Yeah, yeah. It took me a long time, long time, to read this story and the story of the healing of the son in Kings, because I had been Jairus. Yeah. I had gone to Jesus to ask him to save the life of my child. And I could appreciate his horror. Um, Jesus, my daughter is dying. We don't have time to deal with this woman. Can we go? This is not an object lesson. We have to go now. He doesn't go. And she dies. Where are you, God? Um, And then Jesus gives this answer that, you know, don't be afraid, have faith. Okay, okay. For me, the most powerful way I dealt with this, because, you know, I felt like the president of the synagogue. You know, I kneeled before God. I went. I moved. I believed. I prayed. I did everything. My son died in four days. And it was not not an easy death. Um, God did not answer my prayers yet. Yet. Um, I can only say that from from the depths of, of, of emotion, of, of reality. Um, like Steve said, you will have your answer from God. And I believe my son is resurrected. Um, but you have to live through that. You have to live through that nightmare. It's a lot of choices that you end up making along the place. Um, would I ever want to go through that again? No. Um, but I never would have made it, nor would my son, without Jesus. Um, it's the place to go. So I answered, asked the beginning, what happens when we die? You know, glibly, we go to heaven. There's a lot more to it than that, and we know it. But the thing that we've got to hold on to is this hemorrhaging woman and this father knew 
that spark was needed, knew they had to take that first step to move and get to God. And then God can take care of it. No matter what you face, please remember that. It'll get you through things you think will kill you. So, any questions, comments? Heavy tonight, sorry. Well, some of you have your kids to get, so we will let that happen. (laughs) So let's pray. Father our God, thank you. Thank you for letting us spend just a little time with you. Lord, we do love you, and we do center our life around you. So often we get busy that we don't slow down and walk with you. Help us to do what we've done tonight more often to try to really sit at your feet and hear your lessons. Because we know every question you ask is a question you ask of us. Everything you draw our attention to, every parable you you set out before us are steps, part of the puzzle that you put together before us. Let us have those eyes that see, O Lord, the eyes that see through faith and love and righteousness so that we can make sense of what's going on in our world around us. There are people, just like we read tonight, all around us that have no hope, have no sense that death can be conquered. And yet, like your disciples, you've entrusted this story to us. We were the ones you invited in to see the little girl and to hear your tender words of get up. Help us now to be good disciples and to go forth and share that in all the places that we see it's needed. Help us to be faithful. In your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen.